BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We start with Congressman Ro Khanna, the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. His Twitter handle is Rep. Ro Khanna. And he will be with us for the hour, taking your calls at 202-808-9925. Congressman, uh, you know, welcome, welcome to the program or welcome back to the program. I'm curious your thoughts, if I if I may, to begin on this idea. Uh, you know, I laid it out in my rant yesterday that if Biden can't get a big agenda passed, and therefore the American people can't see that Democrats can actually govern in a way that benefits them, and this shifts the momentum to the Republicans, as some are suggesting. I don't know if you've seen Arizona Klein's piece in today's Washington Post. Could that mean that the next president, who would presumably be a Republican, might be America's last president, that we would see the country going down the road of Trump-style dictatorship? I think there's much reason to be concerned of the consequences if we don't pass the agenda. I mean, the striking thing about Ezra's article is the most popular policies that transcend party, that transcend race, that appeal to the white working class as well, are Medicare negotiation for prescription drugs, are giving seniors dental and vision benefits, are making sure that we have a child tax credit. It's basically Bernie's agenda. And that's not coincidental because Bernie went uh, across the country and he resonated in rural America and in white working class communities as well as black and brown communities. And so the failure to implement a popular agenda, I think it will be devastating to our party. It would mean losses in 22, 24. Now, I, you know, I have more faith probably that in American democracy and the culture of democracy and in the opportunism and volatility of voters that I don't think uh, Trump can put an end to democracy. I also don't think he's a serious enough of purpose to be able to do it, but it certainly would be a huge blow to American democracy. Well, if, if Rick Scott was elected president or, or Ron DeSantis or uh, you know, Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or one of these guys, I, you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion that they could end democracy very rapidly using Trump's playbook. And I think they're all smarter than Trump. And some of it may be semantics, right? I mean, yeah. it, it may not be a formal end to democracy, but if you're disenfranchising black voters and if you're disenfranchising Latino voters and you're kicking people off the rolls and you already have an anti-democratic Senate, 
they certainly will be further uh, eroding democratic rights and entrenching uh, a minority uh, rule, which is basically what we have in the Supreme Court. I mean, it's a, a, a mind-boggling. If you look at the ideology of the Supreme Court compared to the ideology of where, where most Americans are, it's a very anti-majoritarian institution. So, you know, the, the risk is that it won't just be the Senate. You could actually have the governing bodies of this country turn to be anti-majoritarian. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. Um, the other the other question I had for you uh, before we start here was uh, I've noticed that well, to, my my op ed today is about you know uh, big pharma and and how the scam that they've been running with taxpayer funded research and everything. It appears that starting early this year in March or April of this year, big pharma started just pouring cash into Kirsten Cinema's coffers. Is this a strategy of, and not even specifically big pharma? I remember the days when the tobacco industry just basically bought everybody, and the fossil fuel industry just basically bought everybody. Is it a new strategy on the part of some of these industries to selectively pick out the one person who can just kill anything, kill it in committee? We had, you know, Oregon's Kurt Schrader here trying to kill Medicare drug pricing, Medicare drug negotiation in committee. He voted against it. He's a Democrat and he voted against it. He's taking big money from pharma. He's an heir to a pharma fortune, too. Is that a strategy or your thoughts on that? It absolutely is. It took me a while to realize this because, and I'm not saying I'm you know, holier than that, but I never had met pharma lobbyists or lobbyists in some of these other industries. And I thought, to my impression, was they try to, to, to get everyone. And then I realized that they're actually far savvier because I talked to colleagues who had never really dealt with them either. They're actually so savvy that it's not even one person, it's not even Senator Cinema. They basically look at the given moment on the chessboard and say, who are the two or three people we need to make sure that this bill or legislation is killed? And that can change year to year. It can change Congress to Congress. And that's what makes it so difficult, because you could have 90 percent of the Congress potentially free of their influence, and they will still find the few people to block the legislation. So they're playing a very sophisticated game. That's amazing. OK, before we pick up our phone calls, anything you wanted to, to mention, you know, what what you're <laughs> up to your eyebrows in uh, Congress wise and stuff like that. We've got to pass this bill, the president's agenda and realize you know, again, as Ezra Klein's article said, I, I mean, he quotes David Shore, who's an Obama guy and, and sympathetic to Bill Clinton. And he says we need to do things that are popular so I, and, and, and not things that are too 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 far to the left, as Shore put it. So I thought, oh, oh no, I'm going to look at the analysis. Is he talking about not doing things that uh, progressives have been pushing for? Turns out the things that are popular are exactly what Sanders and the progressive left have been talking about. Medicare negotiation, benefits for seniors making sure that you have child tax credit, can take care of your kids, overwhelmingly popular. I, I just don't understand how we're going to sabotage our chances of the president by not getting behind things that are universally popular. Yeah. Amen. Congressman O'Connor with us, taking your calls. Patrick in East Lansing, Michigan, watching us on Facebook Live. Hey, Patrick, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. I really appreciate what the Progressive Caucus has done, and kudos to you for where you're at on this reconciliation bill. I have two quick questions about it. One has to do with the debt limit, and what I don't understand, I know the House initiates budget bills and appropriations, and so it's got to come from you, but the Senate then agrees with 50 votes to pass the budget, and then they can filibuster when it comes to pay the debt that the budget incurs. And President Biden called them on that yesterday and the day before. 
But he has the power to make it 50 votes and get rid of the filibuster on the debt limit increase. So I just would like to hear a cogent explanation for why the president and the Senate Republican Democrats are not going to go for 50 votes to raise the debt limit. And my, my other question has to do with moderates who were trying to block this and now look like they're going to come along. Uh, in the East Lansing, Representative Flaxen's now going to daycare um, places and telling us how they're going to give us better daycare and paid sick leave and starting to tell constituents what they're actually going to get for this bill and getting behind it. So what advice would you give to the moderates in the problem caucus who are fighting you who now are going to get behind it? How can, how can they, without too much compromising how, how difficult their districts are, project out this message so that they can survive voting for this? Those are my two questions. I agree with both of your points. Uh, first, the point on uh, raising the debt limit. We can do this. We can do it uh, by overcoming the filibuster. In fact, I think one of the reasons McConnell was willing to make the deal is that he knew that this could be the squad that breaks the camel's back and that Manchin and Cinema may just agree to break the filibuster if it, it came to not defaulting. So we'll see how it plays out in December, but I agree that the president should increase the pressure on breaking the filibuster. If you're not going to do it to safeguard voting rights, you may want to at least do it to safeguard the collapse of our economy. Uh, and it seems like that could at least mot motivate uh, Joe Manchin. Uh, Alyssa Salatkin is terrific in her district. Obviously, we, uh, I'm progressive. She's more moderate. But the way she talks about it, if she goes to families and she says, you're not going to pay more than 7% of your income in child care. That's what this bill means for you. And we have to find ways of being simple, direct. How are you going to benefit? Uh, how is your family going to benefit? I'm all for roads and bridges and, uh, and broadband. We also need to talk directly to families. This is what it's going to mean in, for your, you, for your kids, in your pockets tomorrow after the bill passes. And the more we can do that, the better chances of getting it through. Uh, Joseph in Bovey, Minnesota. Hey, Joseph, we have one minute to the break here. You're on the air with Congressman Conning. Got a quick one? Every few years, it seems like the things like the Panama Papers and now the Pandora Papers come up. And I was wondering if Congress is going to do anything to address this issue. They've been so many of these reports of the billionaires, the corporations not paying money and not paying their tax. I had the Tax Enforcement Act, which simply said you could raise a billion dollars just enforcing the current laws. People aren't. Uh, engage in tax evasion. Some of that is still in the reconciliation bill. I hope it passes. But uh, one of the things that is uh, very interesting to me is you, if you couple policies uh, saying here's what we're going to do and we're going to tax the rich to do it, the tax the rich actually makes it more popular. So it's good politics and substance to be right. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Paul in Shelton, Washington, listening on KMAS. You are on the air with Congressman Connor. Yes, Congressman. Would you sponsor legislation to establish a program to provide a monthly stipend to Afghanistan women who are allowed to work outside the home? And you could have a small portion of this would be a tithe to the local mosque, so that way they have some skin in the game. This, this sounds like a setup question here, Paul. <laughs> Congressman. Look, I, I support redevelopment efforts in Afghanistan, and the U.S. has an obligation after 20 years in war to, to, to focus on helping uh, redevelopment in ways that encourage human rights and women empowerment. But I, I leave the structure of how that should be done 
to the experts uh, who know the humanitarian situation. Bruce in Petaluma, California. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. I have a, que a question regarding the fascist idea that Trump is promoting and seems to be the whole Republican Party. What's the end reward? I don't get that part. There's plenty of wealth in this country already. Plenty of billionaires and, and millionaires. What else, else is there? Uh, just rule by force or whatever? What is it? What's the end result? I don't Bruce, get the I think goal. It's, I, I, it's, a, it's a good question. And in, in Trump's case, I don't think it's very profound. I, I don't think he has some overarching vision of what he wants America to be. I think he just uh, is upset that he lost and he's uh, offended that he uh, he didn't get to, to be a two-term popular president and he has grievances that he got impeached and he he, he doesn't like being seen as a loser and he, he's willing to risk literally uh, everything we, we value about this country and our constitution and our processes for his own ego. Uh, so I, I don't think there's some meta vision that he's, he's fighting for. I think it is petty egoism. Don in San Francisco, you're on with Congress and Kana. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, uh, yes, uh, here I live in uh, California. I just got back from a, a trip in, uh, from uh, New York. And I don't know how many times I met people and they said, what's going on with California and that recall? Um, are we doing? Are you guys doing anything to change those recall rules? Because it's only used against the uh, Democrats, and it's not a good thing. We are. I, I appreciate that. We're hoping to get it off to the ballot next election uh, to change it. it. It would require a constitutional amendment. But we saw how uh, useless it was. I mean, even with Gavin Newsom's challenges, he ended up uh, getting as much of a vote as he uh, as he did in the election a year and a half before. And so it was a total waste of resources, total waste of energy. Uh, and I, I, I think a four-year term is, is perfectly appropriate. And if someone commits terrible uh, crimes or misdemeanors, you can impeach them. I just don't think you should be recalling people in the midst of their term. Uh, and so we are trying to, to change that. So the we being the California Democrats, not the House of Representatives. Democrats. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The state assembly, and then it has to go onto the ballot, and so it has to be a referendum in my Pam in Chicago. Pam, you are on the air with Congressman Connor. Hello, I hope you feel better, uh, Representative. And it's so strange time to hit someone with a common cold. Um, <laughs> Indeed. So, I mean, that's all it is. Yeah, so feel better. So quickly. Thank you. Uh, uh, you're welcome. And I hope I'm asking this right. My concern is, um, first and foremost, if the Republicans get control, they're a destabilizing force in our country. And I don't hear that talked about enough. I'm talking serious destabilization. So if we get the bill passed, I'm concerned that we need to maintain control of uh, the House of Representatives in order to make sure that the monies are appropriated where they will help the people. So I think that could be a selling point because I'm always hearing it's inevitable that we're going to lose the house. And I hope that that is sincerely not true. And my last point is, um, if I don't even want to talk, if we lose the house, how are we going to ensure 
that the families are taken care of. And also, the Democratic Party needs to ask the question, why uh, is there so much contempt for the working class and the poor? Tom, I heard your discussion about more uh, people have fell into the working poor as opposed to middle class. So raise those issues and talk in dollars about child care. People pay child care on a weekly or maybe a monthly basis. Talk about the Pam, dollars. Pam, we have just, just one minute left Thank for Congressman Connor's response. Thank you. Well, I appreciate all your points. I mean, first of all, I completely agree with you that there's not some determinism that we're going to, to lose the House. And I'm very skeptical of these data prognosticators at any election. I think people have agencies, parties have agencies, and we pass this agenda and say, and to implement it, to make it real, to have it continue. We need the House. We need the Senate. I think we have a fighting chance, a good chance. If we don't pass the popular parts, it's a much, up, a much harder battle. Uh, and I, uh, it's a good point in terms of talking about child care very concretely, dollars and cents. You know, now you're paying almost a, a thousand bucks a month for child care. That is going to come down to the maximum 300 bucks a month. I mean, I think those specifics matter. And you're absolutely right about the, the poor, the working poor, the working class. I mean, that's what this bill is geared for. Paul in Woodenville, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. What's to be done about these right-wing groups around the country that are using violence and intimidation to essentially scare off supporters of Democratic candidates? I don't know if you're aware because the news media coverage was so bad about President Biden's visit to Livingston County, Michigan, city of Howell, where he was met by a violent mob, there's what they did. And I, I have connections there, I have family and, and Democratic friends there. And I was talking to the chairwoman of the Democratic Party of Livingston County. She said this is what they did. Used a bullhorn to yell, F Biden, F Biden, and even got the bullhorn into the faces of the Biden supporters yelling, F you and F Biden. One man had a chainsaw running and was revving it and thrusting it at supporters of President Biden. They ran heavy-duty equipment, trucks and tractor loaders up and down the street to make it unsafe to be in the street. And eventually they surrounded all the supporters and squeezed them together like a giant mob and squeezed all the, all the Biden supporters together until everyone left. All the supporters of President Biden left because it was so dangerous. Calls to the Livingston County Sheriff brought no response. And actually the chairwoman of the Dem- uh, Democratic Party in Livingston County stopped a Michigan State uh, trooper cruiser and said look what they're doing to us and the trooper said that's not my problem and drove on what's to be done eventually you know what's going to happen the the word stand your ground is going to have to take place and you know what that means congressman what do you suggest democrats do if we're going to be intimidated this way this is the brown shirts outrageous and shocking uh, what you detail and that just to be clear none of that is protected by the first amendment you have no right to engage in physical threats of violence. You have no right to prevent people from having the peaceful uh, assembly. If anything, they're violating violating people's First Amendment rights. So they should be ar- arrested. I mean, that's, that's what should happen. And I'm surprised, especially with the presidential visit, the, probably the security concerns were so much on him and his entourage. But you're right to point out that they have to be also for all of the people gathering. And there ought to be the rule of law. You can't incite uh, or threaten violence against people uh, in public places. Van in Lewiston, Ohio. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. I'm really frustrated, so I'm going to try to make this brief. I do not understand. I voted for Biden. 
and I have I still have this funny feeling in my stomach about him. He he treat black people at arm's length all the time. You know, he's to me he's hiding behind his vaccines or he won't talk about voting. We are out here fighting our butts off trying to get this vote. Nothing matters if he don't get the voting rights passed. The climate doesn't matter. His agenda doesn't matter. Nothing matters. And then he relegated his his uh these higher tasks to uh um his vice president, Kamala Harris. And, you know, if, if he's frustrated, how do he think she feel? He needs to get out there and have his bullhorn and start talking about this and stop hiding behind the vaccine. I don't hear him saying anything. So, yeah, I am very frustrated. And if he don't get out there and do something, I promise you, black people are going to stay home from now on because nobody have have our back like he said he was supposed to have ours. I hear and appreciate and understand your uh, frustration. I mean, it's uh, appalling that we haven't made progress on the Voting Rights Act. I do agree with you that the president needs to be out front and center, demanding this every day, campaigning on it, calling out the one or two people who are standing in the way, saying this is the civil rights issue of our time. Uh, I agree with you. He shouldn't just delegate this to the vice president, as capable as she is. Uh, this requires presidential leadership. And some of us in the House think this is the most important thing. Uh, Our democracy depends on not disenfranchising people. uh, And if they get away with it this time, they can entrench these reforms that disenfranchise uh, black and brown people. So uh, we will continue to advocate with the White House that he needs to be front and center and make this the highest priority. Don in Wheaton, Illinois, you are on the air with Congressman Congressman Conant. I just wanted to uh, make sure that everybody saw that spot on uh, Democracy Now. Amy had brought in a Greenpeace spy that had spoke and videotaped uh, Exxon Mobil lobbyist, and they just rattled on and on. And they said, "Yeah, Joe Man, on the Democratic side, Joe Manchin is our uh, point man," and he was laughing about it, you know, and. This all seems so obvious, and I still hear in the news about, well, I, I wonder why Joe Manchin is uh, not going along. You know, why? what's holding him back, you know? Well, it seems pretty obvious, and I just wanted to make sure uh, you guys are aware of that, and just another reason why we need to get money out of politics. Well, I appreciate that, and as you may know, I'm uh, going to be having a hearing with Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, all their CEOs before our committee exactly about one of the incidents with McCoy, who was bragging on TV that he was killing climate legislation. And we're going to ask very pointedly, what are these companies doing uh, to kill climate legislation, to spread climate disinformation and get them under oath to commit to stop? But they need to be held accountable. Uh, They're spending millions of dollars on uh, disinformation and killing legislation. And that is what's standing in the way of progress. Rocco in Chicago, you are on the air with Congressman Connor. I have to say, I am a very scared person. I really believe that Donald Trump should be arrested. I think that he should be held either without bond or maybe like $20 billion with a B bond. I sincerely believe that as we wait for subpoenas, there is a radicalization going on that's going to lead to civil war. What influence can the Progressive Caucus have in getting something accomplished directly 
I think Rocco's question is, what can the Progressive Caucus do to get Trump held accountable? And we have, we're doing everything we can. I mean, we're holding oversight hearings. We're encouraging the investigations to continue. We have sent to the Justice Department they need to continue the prosecution and where the facts will lead them, and that there needs to be an accountability for the crimes uh, and uh, laws that were broken. And so we are on the same page that uh, the investigations need to continue. Ryan in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. I've been listening to a lot of interviews that Paul Jay has done with Lawrence Wilkerson, Mikey Weinstein, um, who is the founder of the Military Religious Freedom Foundation. And it, it sounds like they have a lot of concerns about religious fanaticism in, in, in the military. I was wondering, is there, are there any plans for Congress to do any inv- investigations uh, concerning religious, religious fanaticism in, in the military? Thank you. Well, my concern is uh, discrimination, bigotry of all kinds, and there's no tolerance for that in the military, and we've spoken to Secretary Austin about that. Obviously, there's a balance that someone should be entitled to their religious convictions, but uh, your religious convictions should not allow you to discriminate uh, or demean another person. And so I think the investigations and the uh, focus needs to be on a broader non-discrimination policy that I'm confident Secretary uh, Austin is, is implementing. Marie in Atlanta, Georgia, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes, thank you for taking my call, and good afternoon, Congressman Khanna. Um, I'd actually like to switch to something that's a little more you know, remote in terms of the idea. Um, when there are some municipalities, um, some governments that did not um, sign on to Social Security, so they do not contribute for Social Security to their employees. Um, many of them, and these were decisions made decades ago, many of those municipalities have instead pension plans. But as you know, in the past decades um, within this century, um, they have run into problems with paying those pension benefits. Um, and some of them at the beginning of the 21st century signed on to um, what uh, the 401A, which is similar to a 401K, but it is it is characterized as a social security replacement. Um, it is essentially privatized social security, and you don't even want to hear the horror I went through when the Great Recession began in 2008. Um, but here's the problem: when the employee retires, if they have earned social security benefits from other employment, those benefits are paid out. Um, at a lower rate because of what's called a um, windfall penalty. The employee actually actually receives a lower benefit because of those years that, not due to any choice of their own, they were not contributing to Social Security. And the way that it works out is that there's, there's no mechanism by which the employee could decide, you know what, I, I know I'm not contributing to Social Security, I'll do it myself. There is no mechanism for that. So I'm wondering if there is any appetite, um, any understanding of this issue. It's a flaw in the creation of of this 401A that I am hoping um, will get resolved because I'm looking at personally after a decade of public service, and I do mean really good service, I'm looking at a windfall penalty of 40%, meaning my benefits will be reduced by 40%. Wow. Well, I hear you, and I... uh First, uh, please contact either us or your member of Congress to see if we can assist with that. 
but the Social Security Fairness Act that John Larson has introduced and that uh, many of us are on fixes this, uh, we need to get a vote on it in the House and we need to get it passed to the Senate. But it fixes some of these uh, quirks where people uh, aren't getting the benefits that they deserve. Charles in Santa Monica, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Thanks for listening to KPFK. In order to for us to be a more effective, progressive populace and for our, to be able to uh, leverage that with our congresspersons, I'm wondering, do we know who the contributors are in this current round, um, as you were speaking before, that they only need to, to mess up the works, they only need to gain influence on one or two representatives, right? So do we know who the, the contributors are to, uh, in this case, cinema and mansion, so that the people could mount a shaming expose of those corporations because they're the ones who are the roadblock. Hmm. We do. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's disguised as third-party groups. The corporations are contributing to third-party groups, and so they're not directly there. Sometimes it's through their PACs. Sometimes it's very diffuse, so there'll be 50 to 100 of them uh, that all congregate to to do it, so no no one person stands out. But it's all public information who funds... uh, Cinema, the fundraisers have been in the news, and uh, you're right to, to call attention uh, to the, the, the donor interest uh, in cases where policies are overwhelmingly popular. Johan in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. California High Speed Rail Project. Um, yes. Are you for it with or against it? I'm for it. I think it could have been better handled. It, it, it could get off to a great start, but I'm for it. Uh, Jeff in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hey, good morning, Tom and, and Rep. Kana, thanks as always for the town, town hall. Congressman Kana, um, you know, given the two states they represent, it's, it's astounding Mansion and Cinema aren't willing to recognize how much their states will benefit from the Build Back Better Act. West Virginia is near last in so many categories, you know, healthcare, education, income. Arizona uh, has a large senior population and is ground zero for the, clim- for the extreme drought and climate change. So, Congressman Kana, will you, A, explain how the smaller infrastructure bill does little or nothing to address the climate crisis, and B, according to uh, Michael Hiltz's column in Wednesday's LA Times, the, the Department of Interior does no monitoring, absolutely no monitoring or inspecting of underwater oil pipelines. It's all up to the companies to self-regulate. What can be done to change that? And we really need to stop line three and shut down line five. Thank you, Congressman. Feel better soon. Thank you. Well, I'm against uh, line three, and I appreciate your advocacy there. We wrote to the appropriate regulatory agencies that are starting an investigation of what can be done. Apparently, this company was in violation with the uh, oil uh, pipeline that broke and uh, how we can have better oversight. Uh, You're absolutely right in terms of, look, my district in Silicon Valley, the taxes are going up to help states like Arizona and West Virginia. The corporations and the multimillionaires are going to be paying more tax or in my district. And the benefits will disproportionately be going to communities and states left behind. So... Uh, I completely agree with you that we need to make that point that this is actually going to help uh, a lot of the middle class, a lot of the South. Yeah. Jake in Elizabeth, Pennsylvania, you are on the air with Congressman Conn. Will y'all discuss the implications of the Ninth Amendment that says the enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed, denied, or disbarred? 
Raj, others retained by the people, particularly in context with the uh, Declaration of Independence that says, from the consent of the governed, that seems to indicate we the people are supposed to run the country, not the oligarchs. And I'd like y'all's opinions along those lines. Thank you, Jake. Jake, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we have rights that are not enumerated in the Constitution. Among those are what FDR said, economic rights, the right to have a dignity of one's labor and not to just be dominated by large uh, economic conglomerates and not have the ability to have freedom in the workplace and dignity in the workplace. You're right that we need to have a fairer economic system, and that's what the president's agenda on Build Back Better is, is a step towards. Joe in Cupertino, California, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thanks. I didn't think I was going to get in. Congressman, I hope you feel better. I appreciate the town hall that you had yesterday. I wanted to ask you a question, though. You know, uh, nuclear arms are down at 87% or 88% of what they were at their height in 1967. And I know that this is a big issue for you. But, you know, Joe Biden seems to be of the opinion that we don't need to reinvest in arcane old ballistic missiles either. And at the cost of, uh, what, $770 trillion over 10 years or whatever it is. And, you know, I, I think if we could just do better, and I, I think maybe 70% would be a great way. I'm really concerned about what's going on in China. And this reduction in nuclear arms suggests that we're not trying to start a nuclear war. We're trying to prevent any aggression. What do you think? Um, you sit on the committee that has some say there. Maybe we could get a reduction in the continue or reduce what we already have. And I'll listen offline. Thank you. Please, that the President Biden, the Biden administration made the numbers public, our nuclear uh, weapons archive, and it's much, much lower than at the height of the Cold War. It's still a overwhelming deterrent force against Russia or China, much, much more potent than China uh, many times over. And what some of us have said is we don't need to modernize the ICBMs and spend more money modernizing it, and Rep. Caramendi and I have been leading the effort on the Armed Services Committee to say stop the modernization and instead spend this money uh, on building our nation here at home. Bob in Aventura, Florida. You are on the air with Congressman Connor. The January 6th insurrection. We're 10 months past that point, and many of the people who were arrested for protests, well, actually, their insurrection, uh, only got a slap on the wrist. And in my eyes, what they virtually did, along with the Trump uh, followers, was commit treason. And in the 50s, we had the Rosenbergs who were executed for treason due to the prosecution from Roy Cohn. Should not that be on the table somewhere for some of these people who are instigating this? Bob, I agree with you that we need to uh, prosecute these, that they need to face the consequences. Uh, I will let the Justice Department handle that. Uh, but they uh, need to be aggressive at prosecuting anyone who uh, violated uh, the law, stormed the Capitol, scaled the Capitol, tried to subvert the democratic process. And I'm, I, I'm confident that they will do that. I'm assuming, though, that you're not in favor of the death penalty for these people, which is what no, he was I'm implying. Not for the death, no, did he suggest the death penalty? No, yeah, I'm not, he, I'm he, he brought up the Rosenbergs. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm physically... I've always been opposed to the death penalty. I just don't think that uh, human per uh, justice is, is perfect enough to make uh, that kind of ultimate decision on, on life and death. And so 
I oppose the death penalty, but I do think that they should be prosecuted and held accountable. Yeah, it's it's surprising to me how many calls we got today that, that I think might have been people trying to get you to say things that could be used in Republican ads against you. Thoughts for the next week? We made progress uh, in uh, it, uh, trying to get to a compromise amongst uh, uh, Republican uh, and amongst our Democratic colleagues. Uh, I am confident we're going to get this done. I really think that the the vision should be to do all the programs but have less years in them and we can reach a compromise. But we have to get this done, Tom. It's the single most important thing in my five years at Congress to deliver on this. I'm completely with you. Congressman Connor, thanks so much. Uh, feel better soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, always a pleasure. A couple points that I wanted to share with you, a couple stories I wanted to talk about real quickly, and then I'll get back to your phone calls. The first is the breaking news that Steve Bannon, who was subpoenaed to testify before the January 6th committee, who left the Trump White House in 2017, so wasn't even around in 2018, 2019, or 2020 when the January 6th, uh, uh, more specific, most specifically 2020, when January 6th was planned and executed, wasn't even around, uh, has said, sorry, I'm not going to show up because Trump's lawyer told me that he's asserting executive privilege. Now, this could play out one of two ways. I, and, and his lawyer and Bannon's lawyer said to the committee, we'll go along with whatever the courts say. In other words, what they're asking the committee to do is essentially sue them in the, in the U.S. court system to say you have to comply. And then they'll defend that suit in, in a district court and uh, or or an appeals. You know, you can take it to an appeals court, take it to the Supreme Court. This is exactly what Don McGahn did. And he dragged this thing out for two whole years, Don McGahn did, and, you know, to, to avoid testifying before Congress about what Trump was up to. So the January 6th committee has two choices. Number one, they can sue and try to use the courts to force Bannon to, to, uh, uh, to come in. Or they can simply make a criminal referral. Actually, they, they could also cite inherent contempt. Jamie Raskin is promoting this. I'm... I'm not certain how that would play out, and that would certainly land back in the courts, which would drag it out. But they could make a criminal referral to Merrick Garland in the Justice Department and say, Congress has issued a subpoena. This guy is refusing to show up. He says he's got some excuses, but we want him arrested. So the decision is going to lie with, number one, the committee. Do they make a criminal referral? And number two, if they do, with Merrick Garland, does he act on it? And then let Steve Bannon sue the Department of Justice saying, no, wait a minute, you can't come and arrest me. Or when he's out on bail, say, you can't charge me with a crime because I was simply doing what executive privilege allows me to do. A defense, by the way, that I don't think that he will win because he, for no other reason than, than that he was out of the White House for three years. But I uh, just thought you'd, you should know that is the breaking news as of this moment. And uh, I'm going to be following this. I'll, I'll keep you up to date, certainly. But there are two decision points here. What's the committee going to do? How are they going to respond to this? And if they refer it to the Justice Department, as I'm hoping, what will the Justice Department do? And right at this moment, we don't have the answer to either of those two things. The other thing, story that I want to share with you is my rant today from, from Hartman Report. And uh, it's titled, The Newest Big Pharma Scam of, uh, Exposed. 
Uh, big Pharma's obscenely priced drugs developed with our tax dollars are going to continue to drain working people of their income, their savings, and ultimately their health until America represent, uh, recognizes health care as a right. It's about uh, Malnupiravir. This is this new pill that's been all over the news because uh, you just take one pill a day for five days. When you first get some COVID symptoms, this is for uh, largely for unvaccinated people. It would it would work also for vaccinated people, but it, you know they very rarely do vaccinated people get COVID symptoms. But it's a pill. It doesn't you know if you're if you're going to take the monoclonal antibody remdesivir, you've got to go to a to an infusion center or a hospital or a doctor's office, have a needle put in your vein, and sit there for 20 minutes while they drip it into you slowly. Um, this is just a pill you take. It was developed by Emory University with a $10 million grant from the Department of Defense and a $19 million grant from the National Institutes of Health. After they, and it was developed originally to deal with a virus that attacks horses. It's called uh, Venezuelan equine encephalitis. And it's apparently successful for that. And so they thought, hey, this is an antiviral drug. Let's see if it works against COVID. And sure enough, it, it appears to work. So Emory University passed this patent along to a small company, Ridgeback Biotherapeutics. And then Ridgeback passed that patent along to pharmaceutical giant Merck. According to the Harvard School of Public Health, this new pill will cost $17.74 to manufacture for a five-day course of treatment. So Merck just signed a contract with the federal government to sell 1.7 million treatment courses. Again, a pill that costs them less than 20 bucks for a treatment course to make. They just signed a, a contract with our government to sell our government 1.7 million of these courses of treatment that the government will then distribute to infected people for, wait for it, $712 each. Manufactured cost, $17. Sale price, $712. And you and I paid for the development of this drug in the first place. Now, the company is, is saying, but we paid for testing it on COVID. Well, yeah, of course. This price gouging hustle was made possible and might be illegal, ironically, under a piece of legislation referred to as by, uh, by uh, Dole. It was Birch Bayh and Bob Dole, these two senators back in 1980, who got this thing passed over Jimmy Carter's objections. And what it says is that when the federal government funds research in a university, the university may sell that patent to either a nonprofit or a small business. They may not sell it to a large business. So now there's this kind of little industry of, of small companies like Ridgeback Biopharmaceuticals that buy these patents and then turn around and sell them to the giant companies. But that's not the biggest part. The biggest part of this is that by Dole contains within it, this piece of legislation contains within it, a provision called March-in authority for the federal government. This is a quote from uh, Peter Amo, Arno, excuse me, and uh, Michael Davis in the Washington Post. Quote, by Dole is a provision of U.S. patent law that states that practically any new drug invented wholly or in part with federal funds will be made available to the public at a reasonable price. If it is not, then the government can insist that the drug be licensed to more reasonable manufacturers, and if refused, license it to third parties who will make the drug available at a reasonable cost. So now you've got Big Pharma and their lobbyists going to the Trump administration saying, get rid of this march-in authority. And sure enough, Wilbur Ross's Commerce Department 
proposed in the Federal Register uh, during the Trump administration to eliminate the margin authority. And that issue is still live before the Biden Commerce Department. So watch this space for that. But meanwhile, Big Pharma is also buying off members of Congress and senators. They've got, you know, they're, they're deeply pouring money into Kirsten Cinema. like there's just no tomorrow to block Biden's Build Back Better plan because it will allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. And, they're, and, they're also, and, and the same thing in the House of Representatives with the so-called problem solver Democrats like Scott Peters of California, Kathleen, Kathleen Rice of New York State, and uh, Oregon's Kurt Schrader, who all voted against letting Medicare negotiate drug prices. As a result of this, uh, this and, and you know, Citizens United, the Supreme Court saying, oh, d- drug companies can pour unlimited amounts of money down Kirsten Sinema's throat or Kurt Schrader's or whoever they want. A recent study found, and I quote, for 17 of the 20 top-selling drugs worldwide, drug makers made more money from American, from U.S. sales, than from sales to all other countries in the rest of the world combined. More profit in the U.S. than the rest of the world combined. They go on to say, for 11 of the 20 top-selling drugs worldwide, U.S. sales revenue is double or more the revenue for sales in the rest of the world. In other words, we pay twice as much or more for 11 of the top 20 drugs being sold worldwide. And this is, uh, this is just obscene. I, you know, there's no other word for it. It's just obscene. You can read uh, the whole story with the links to the sources and everything else over at HartmanReport.com. Brett in Seattle. Hey, Brett, what's on your mind today? I'm curious about your thoughts about Congress placing sanctions on its members, representatives and senators who refuse to hold town halls. I think it would be a great idea. There's nothing in law, there's nothing in the Constitution, there's nothing anywhere that requires members of Congress, uh, federal or state for that matter, uh, state legislatures also, to hold town hall meetings or even listen to their constituents. And therefore, you know, if, uh, for a lot of Republicans, if you call, and some Democrats, if you call their offices, you get voicemail. And that's it. And that's the only way you can communicate with them. Or you can try to send them an email or tweet to them, but, you know, nothing happening. So there is no law like that, Brett. Uh, and I, I, I sincerely doubt one could pass, given that virtually the entire Republican Party is refusing to respond to, to their constituents. And, and, you know, there's a good-sized handful of Democrats. Yes. Okay, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? Well, I'll tell you what's on my mind today. We are in an era of first. We're in an era of first. I'm talking about ignoring congressional subpoenas, obstructing public policy, okay? Now, you want to save democracy? We got one tool left, everybody. It's called inherent contempt. Now, I know what the professor said about that in the courts, but here's what I'm saying. Let the sergeant of arms come and pick you up, lock you up, and then let the courts, somebody go to court and try to get you released. Now, they went out there and picked up Steve Bannon out in the ocean someplace some time ago. Now, I don't know who it was that picked him up. That was the Postal you know, Service. Who? It was the Post Office. He was charged with mail fraud. Okay, well, I don't care who it was, Professor. They don't have no more influence than the Congressional Select Committee. Okay, so they're going about this the wrong way. You got a, uh, you got a sergeant of arms. Let him go pick these people up that uh, don't want to respect these summons. Of course, go ahead and let the Department of Justice do their thing. And then let the courts fight. Let him get a lawyer to fight to get him released from Congress, okay, to, to make a statement. Because, see, we're playing softball. Those guys are playing hardball. 
Okay, so if we can go around the world assassinating people, we can go around the world arresting people, too. Again, nobody's got more influence than that Congressional Select Committee. If they don't use that tool, you know, I'm not kidding. Democracy could be at risk. If we don't bust these guys right now on this, I mean, gee whiz, Professor, what's left for us? I'm with you, Morris. I'm completely with you. And that's that's why I highlighted the fact, you know, Steve Bannon is saying, no, screw you guys. And, uh, you know, I am hopeful that instead of trying to sue him civilly, which is what they did with Don McGahn, that they instead go to the Justice Department and file a criminal complaint and then and then let Bannon try to defend himself against uh, being arrested as opposed to. Go ahead. what, What about my idea? Go pick him up. And then let the, uh, his lawyer try to get him released. The, the last time Congress used inherent contempt was in the 1920s. It, they did not jail anybody. The Congress does not have a jail. They do have their own police department, you know, the sergeant at arms, uh, but they don't have authority outside the halls of Congress. And I doubt Steve Bannon is going to come to Washington, D.C. and walk into Congress where they could, where they could arrest him. I'm, I'm very skeptical about inherent uh, contempt, Morris. I, you know, I, I think that it should be tried at some point. You know, we need to nail it down because Congress does have that authority, at least in theory. But it, how it plays out in practice is, is you know, a hell of a challenge. I, I would much rather see them go directly to the Justice Department and file criminal charges. Now, maybe Jamie Raskin doesn't think that Merrick Garland has the courage to, to follow through on criminal charges. They put Susan McDougal in prison for 18 months for refusing to respond to a congressional subpoena about Bill Clinton's sex life. Uh, or actually it was about whitewater it turned into the the sex life thing so uh you know i mean that's how they that's how they should be doing it in my opinion morris thank you very much for the call we'll be right back phil in salinas california hey phil what's up well i think they ought to just arrest steve bannon and put him on a no bail warrant and let him sit in jail and rot for a little while i'm with you that's what he is he's rot yeah, Congress has basically three choices right now. The the the, the January sixth committee, and it's going to be. I, I would be love to be a fly on the wall as they're debating this, particularly given that you've got a couple of Republicans on that committee. Uh, you know, Adam Kinzinger and, and Liz Cheney. Um, but they have three options. They can do. They can file a civil lawsuit to try to force him to show up, which is what they did against Don McGahn. And Don McGahn ran out the clock for two full years. Um, exactly. you know, fighting in the courts. They can, uh, they can cite inherent contempt, which is a power that Congress has, but hasn't been used since the 1920s. And Congress doesn't have its own police force. They've got the sergeant at arms, but I doubt Steve Bannon's going to walk into the Congress and say, I'm here, arrest me. And they don't even have a jail cell in Congress anymore. They use it as a storage place for Abraham Lincoln's hearse, for the cart that carried his body. Or they can refer a criminal complaint to the Justice Department, which is what they did with Susan McDougal back in the day when Bill Clinton was president and they were investigating Whitewater. The Whitewater Committee uh, subpoenaed Susan McDougal. She was a partner in the Whitewater land deal where Bill Clinton, Bill and Hillary lost 30,000 bucks. She, uh, they subpoenaed her. She said, I'm not going to come in. I'm not going to show up. And uh, they arrested her. They filed a criminal complaint with the Justice Department. The Justice Department went out and, and arrested Susan McDougal, and she sat in prison for 18 months for refusing to testify before Congress, if I'm remembering this correctly. Um, it may be that there was a grand jury involved there. I may, I may be slightly off, but in any case, he could be arrested if this goes to the Justice Department and if, if Merrick Garland decides he's going to do something. Now, keep in mind, this is the same Merrick Garland, our Attorney General, 
who wrote a nasty letter to Arizona saying it is a violation of federal law for you to be turning ballots and voting machines over to the cyber ninjas. And then did nothing. And now this is happening in Pennsylvania and they're doing nothing. I, I'm frankly very, very disappointed in this Justice Department. They, they need to be taking names and kicking ass, in my opinion. Stacy in Ingram, Michigan, uh, or Wisconsin, excuse me. Hey, Stacy, what's up? You know, with Trump going on and on and on about how it's a fake election and it's rigged and all this and that, now what's going to stop these senators and congressmen from pulling the same thing in 2022 and 2024 once again? I'm just thinking, is bringing in the U.N. to oversee our elections a possibility if we can't get anything done? You know, other Wisconsin, we're the most gerrymandered state probably in the country. Yeah. And, and yeah, there's nothing we Scott can do Walker. about it unless we get our maps changed. Yeah. I mean, is that a possibility? Are we going to have to get to that point? Yeah, in Wisconsin, for example, you will, uh, a majority of people vote for Democrats for the U.S. House of Representatives, yet you're sending a majority of representatives to Washington, D.C. as Republicans. Absolutely. And the yes, same thing yes. is true of your House and Senate there. Uh, uh, and they won't let our, they won't let our governor do anything. Yeah, they won't no, let them I, do anything. Yeah, and you've got a Democratic governor because it's a statewide office, but you, you know, you've got a gerrymandered House and Senate. Um, Stacy, the United Nations is not going to save us. They don't have the authority to. They don't have the will to. Uh, you know, they, it's just it's not going to happen. It, this is something that has to be done from the grassroots up. We have to become politically active. You, uh, if I may, uh, you know, be so bold as to suggest you and and everybody you know need to get inside the Democratic Party in Wisconsin, become active, do everything you can to make sure that as many people as possible, people of goodwill, are registered to vote right now. You've got the, the Koch network, these right-wing billionaire networks, multiple right-wing networks actually all across the country mobilizing on the ground. The Koch network itself is, has you know, a larger budget and more employees than the Republican Party. And they are actively getting people registered to vote, Republicans getting them registered to vote all across America in anticipation of just this kind of thing. Democrats need to be doing the same thing. There, there is no other way you know, through this or out of this that I know of. Stacy, thank you for the call. Larry in Soyset, uh, Soyos, Soyoset, New York. Am I saying that right, Larry? Close, Syosset. Syosset, okay. So what's up? Perfect, okay. I have a comment and a question. My comment is um, my senator, I'm very upset with my senator, Chuck Schumer, who's a nice man, I've met him, and that's the problem. He's too nice, and what we need is a really strong guy who can stand up to Mitch McConnell, and Chuck Schumer is it. So my question to you is, is there a way that we can get him not being the majority leader and put someone else in? No, possible I mean, you know, I'm 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 not, uh, you know, wildly enthusiastic about Chuck Schumer either. Um, I think that the communications that come out of his office, I've I've communicated this to his office through other members of Congress several times. The emails that they send out to the press are long and dry and boring. The statements that they make are, are like speeches. Um, they they don't under yeah. Schumer's office yeah. does not understand bumper sticker politics. It, it makes me crazy. I've been yelling at them for years about it. And and then of course he is not standing up to to Mitch McConnell and and, and frankly to Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin in the ways exactly. that I think Mitch McConnell would if he had an insurrection like that going on inside his caucus. And uh, but you know when you get to that position of uh, Senate Majority Leader or Speaker of the House in either case, you have control of an enormous pile of cash 
that gets funneled through mm. your office to other members of Congress that helps that, that mm. incentivizes them to keep you in power. So it's damn near impossible, Larry. Unless Chuck Schumer decides that he's just going to pull out, you know, launching any kind of campaign against him, I, you know, could just be destructive. So I'll just leave it at that. Carl in Concord, North Carolina, it says here you disagree with me about the Buy Dole Act. Just so you know, I'm a patent attorney, and I have worked for universities for the last 25 years, so I've been real familiar with Bayh-Dole for a quarter of a century now. Uh, there's a couple of things in your rant that are slightly off. I mean, one of them is uh, talking about how we can sell patents to people. We don't get to sell the patents to anybody. I didn't use the word sell. I, I used the word transfer intentionally. They're typically licensed. Correct. Yeah, they're licensed. And we could license two large companies. Uh, we just have to have a preference for small companies. But the big okay. thing that uh, I'm, I'm calling about is uh, about thinking that we might be able to use Bayh-Dole in order to control the prices of the drugs. Uh, I'm totally sympathetic to you. I wish we could. But the way that the law is written, it says that the only way that the federal government can march in is if the licensee does not make practical application of the technology. So as long as they have got the stuff available out there in a way that it can be accessed by some people, they meet that. It's a relatively low bar. Uh, even as it's uh, been interpreted, told themselves. As it's been interpreted, um, but if, if I, I don't know if you saw the article that I wrote about this, but it has links in yes, it. Yes, I did. You've got you've got the pharmaceutical industry out there saying, no, no, margin authority cannot be used because we're price gouging. Uh, you, just, you can't do that. And then on the same time, you've got the pharmaceutical industry getting the Commerce Department to explicitly change by Dole to say that pricing is not a mechanism. Now, why would they do that if it wasn't possible? The argument that, that was made in the Washington Post back in 2002 by these two, two professors from, uh, as I recall, Harvard and I forget the other school, um, that I quote in my article, and there's a link to that article, was that you could interpret by, by, by Dole as, as uh, explicitly, you know, you could, excuse me, let organize my thoughts here. You could interpret pricing as being part of that practical use, or the phrase that you used, uh, forgive me for not remembering it. And, and yeah, practical application. Practical application, thank you. And, uh, the, you know, the courts have not done that because to the best of my knowledge uh, and the best of their knowledge, nobody has asked them to. In other words, you know, the federal Correct. government has never, never tried to use walk-in powers uh, in under by Dole. So nobody really knows. It's never been tested in court. Right. But if I can make two quick points here, Certainly. one of them is that in response to that article that you quoted, senators, former senators, by and Dole wrote a response. Oh, I read it. Published I read in, it. In the, yeah. Yeah. But, but, they, but that had no legal authority. That, that was just an opinion. It. Well, it, you could say that it shows legislative intent. I mean, I understand if you but are like courts Scalia and don't believe frequently that. ignore legislative intent and say we're going to. In fact, this is Neil Gorsuch's whole thing: ignore our legislative intent, go with the what the the plain words of the law. Right. But one other thing that nobody ever seems to talk about here is, that I think could be used is Baidol also requires that anything licensed under Baidol has to be substantially manufactured in the U.S. And I doubt that all of these drugs are being substantially manufactured here. Oh, that's so you interesting. you do have a hook in there. That's interesting. So, 
Carl, thank you for that. Thank you for the conversation, for a thoughtful conversation. I'll have to dig into that, maybe amend my article. Thank you very much, Carl. Good to hear from you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 